There is huge areas of permafrost that contain a significant amount of organic matter. Now that the climate is warming and impacting permafrost, the problem is that it means that if you release this greenhouse gas, it will contribute to warm the atmosphere even more, and therefore it will contribute to thaw permafrost even more, and therefore it will be some kind of positive feedback that may really cause an issue in the future. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hi, I'm George Sutherland, Climate Change and Sustainability Advisor in the Bank of Montreal's Climate Institute. I'll be hosting a series of episodes doing a deep dive into the different physical risks of climate change, covering topics such as flooding, permafrost thaw, wildfire, extreme heat, and more, and speaking with leading experts to unpack what each of these climate risks mean to our environmental, social, and economic systems. In the second episode of this series, we're exploring the topic of permafrost thaw. Permafrost underlies approximately one quarter of the Northern Hemisphere's land surface and is widespread in subarctic and Arctic latitudes, where about 5 million people live on these permafrost landscapes and are directly impacted by current and future trends in thawing permafrost. To put some numbers to this impact, in Canada, Thawing permafrost has been estimated to cost $1.3 billion over the next 75 years in the Northwest Territories alone. In Alaska, where 85% of the land is underlain by permafrost, one 2015 study estimated that the cost of permafrost thaw to infrastructure will climb to $1.6 billion US dollars by the end of this century. And in Russia, a country where 65% of the ground is underlain by permafrost, the cost of its thaw has been estimated at more than $67 billion by mid-century. Yet, to many, permafrost might still seem like a distant thought, something recognized as important due to the economic impact that it has on those who live in these northern regions, but to those who live outside these areas, Permafrost thaw can seem far away from impacting our daily lives, our health, or our ways of doing business. But the reality is that permafrost is fundamentally linked to all of us through environmental systems which operate at a global scale. That's because when ground is frozen, it prevents carbon-rich organic matter from decomposing, which effectively traps large amounts of carbon in our world's permafrost. In fact, over the 23 million square kilometers where permafrost is found, it is estimated that about 1,500 gigatons of organic carbon matter are stored. That's more than all of the carbon currently stored in our atmosphere. And as permafrost thaws, this carbon-rich organic matter decomposes and releases greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, which exacerbate the impacts of climate change to everyone, no matter where you live. 
even if only a small portion of this appreciable store of carbon is emitted to the atmosphere, it could influence the severity of flooding, droughts, fires, and other climate extremes, which underscores the point that in a conversation about the impacts of climate change, permafrost is a globally significant part of the discussion. And with me to unpack this subject in greater detail are two experts on this topic. Dr. Fabrice Kalmels is a permafrost and geoscience research chair at Yukon University's Research Centre, who has been studying permafrost thaw across the Canadian North for 20 years. His research examines the impact of permafrost thaw on landscapes, infrastructure, communities, and their traditional land, and he is currently working on permafrost vulnerability studies with northern communities. He is also assessing the impact of climate change on northern highways and contributing to the development of adaptation strategies in partnership with the Yukon government. Also joining me is Paul Murkison, Executive Director of Major Transportation with the Yukon government. Paul has more than 15 years of experience specializing in transportation and geotechnical and permafrost engineering, and oversees the development and implementation of many large multidisciplinary transportation programs, including the Yukon Resource Gateway Program, and he does so within the context of climate change and permafrost thaw posing mounting challenges to developing northern infrastructure. Thank you for joining me today. Fabrice, can you describe what permafrost is, where it exists, and why it's important? So permafrost is a, a thermal phenomenon because indeed it is a, any type of soil or ground that has a temperature at or below zero degrees Celsius for at least two consecutive years. You can find permafrost in the northern region, like in Yukon and in Alaska and in Russia, but you can also find permafrost in, in mountain areas, so in high elevation, where uh, the air temperature is cold enough to allow it to exist. Why it is important? Well, it's frozen ground, and the ground is a very important part of our uh, ecosystem and uh, our economy, especially in Canada. You can have a lot of activities. You can have transportation, you can have hunting, you can have building housing on the ground. So every time that you have permafrost in an area where these activities are taking place, is degradation can have an impact on any kind of activities. Thanks, Fabrice. And Paul, do you have anything to add from a transportation perspective or, or from your lens? Yeah, George. I think when, when we look at how permafrost thawing that can impact transportation infrastructure in, in the Yukon, the first key thing to realize is over 25% of our transportation network is underlain by permafrost. A large portion of that permafrost is ice-rich, meaning there's a lot of a lot of ice in that ground. Climate change-induced permafrost thawing causes that ice to thaw, and when the ice thaws, you you have a volume, a loss of volume in material under your road is that it becomes water and, and drains. So what we can see is a lot of movement, which would be settlement deformation of transportation infrastructure as a result of climate change-induced permafrost thawing. And that, that becomes a big issue from a, a jurisdictional perspective as we look to having to maintain this infrastructure currently and into the future. Fabrice, 
Can you unpack the science of how climate change is impacting permafrost and what trends are observed in permafrost thaw to date with a warming climate? Yes, so permafrost is essentially a climate phenomenon, right? Because it's based on temperature, so it means that it's developed because atmospheric temperature, cold enough, uh, induced uh, frost in the ground. And the climate change at this time include air temperature warming, but also include uh, a change in the precipitation. And to have permafrost degrading, it takes one thing, which is heat, and uh, air temperature rising include a warming in, in the permafrost, but also if you increase the amount of precipitation and the, the amount of water in the system, this water is carrying heat that will also degrade and thaw permafrost. So the two major impacts of climate change are those, are the increase of air temperature, but also an increase in precipitation, and it can be the precipitation in the, with the water warming the ground, but also the, the precipitation in winter, with uh, more snow that will melt later on at spring and will uh, bring heat in the system, but also the snow has uh, an insulating effect on permafrost. It, it is a blanket that covers uh, permafrost uh, during the winter and prevent permafrost to cool off. So global average temperature has increased 1.1 degrees Celsius and northern latitudes are warming at three times this global average rate. Can you speak to the increased rates of change that are being observed in permafrost thaw? So, you know, I think that there is um, two types of change. There is a change that are slow and progressive. And this is a kind of a change we have, like when we are talking about settlement and uh, the, the formation of thermocast ponds or lake. And these ones are always a little bit uh, difficult to quantify. If you look at uh, some satellite imagery and air imagery for the last 50 years, we observed that uh, there is an increase in the formation of these ponds and lake. And lake. Permafrost temperature is a very good indicator about change. Over the years, scientists have observed that the ground temperature has increased at many places in the north. And uh, this increase in temperature seems to be accelerating these last uh, decades. Also, with that, you have the active layer, which is the layer of ground that freeze and thaw each year, that is increasing. So which means that you can you start to lose permafrost from the top to the bottom. So those are very progressive and take time to develop and may maybe less catastrophic than other type of degradation, such as landslides. And uh, these landslides that we call uh, often uh, retrogressive to slump, that are the most dramatic ones that you can have, can be very fast, formed in a matter of a few years. And what we start to observe now is that there is an increase of frequencies in the formation of this type of uh, mass movement and slope. Thanks, Fabrice. And Paul, do you have anything to add? What I would add is that when you, you speak about climate change and rate of climate change, Certainly it's faster in the north, but when you look at North America, that climate change is further accelerating in the Western Arctic. So when you look at the Yukon, we're experiencing even greater magnitudes of climate change from a warming perspective. So what Fabrice mentioned, you know, with respect to some geohazards and, you know, thaw slumps and, and some of those significant occurrences that can impact highways, bridges, airports, where we do see more frequent occurrences of geohazards, and that's that that's that sort of more immediate large magnitude type failures. 
We also are experiencing more gradual changes, which I would describe as, you know, in, in areas where roads may have been stable in the past. So on permafrost that was not thawing, with climate change and, and this warming that we're experiencing, some of these areas are becoming destabilized. And we're seeing settlements occur and failures occur, smaller scale failures more frequently in the north. So this is what we're starting to see is these impacts being displayed on our network where in the past we really haven't had problems. Thanks, Paul and Fabrice. And I'm wondering if we could unpack a little bit more about the environmental impacts of thawing permafrost. Yeah, there is huge areas of permafrost that contain a significant amount of organic matter. And when this ground is frozen, it's not, it's not an issue because it stopped any type of uh, biological process to uh, degrade this organic matter and uh, induce the formation of uh, gas or release uh, carbon dioxide or, or methane. Now that the climate is warming and impacting permafrost, the active layer is increasing, which means that some layer of ground that were frozen and containing this uh, carbon are reactivated biologically. So degradation can develop. The problem is that it means that if you release this greenhouse gas, it will warm up again. It will contribute to warm the atmosphere even more. And therefore, it will contribute to thaw permafrost even more. And therefore, it would be some kind of positive feedback that may really cause an issue in the future. So my feeling is that really the solution to that is political, I guess. It's really preventing to have more greenhouse gas in the atmosphere to trigger this mechanism. And this positive feedback is certainly important. It's even been referred to as a carbon bomb. And the fact that this sort of language has been used to refer to this positive feedback mechanism indicates just how concerning these positive feedbacks are associated with thawing permafrost. Yes, it's true that it represents a lot of carbon that could be released in the atmosphere. To be fair, it's only when you look from the permafrost perspective that it can be an issue. Now we know that with a warming climate, all the ecosystem in the north will be changed, which means that, for example, the tree lines, the tree line should go higher in the north and some vegetation should develop. So it's a possibility that part of this uh, part of this issue is mitigated by the ecosystem itself, because by growing more vegetation, you may trap this carbon in uh, in the environment. Thanks, Fabrice. And Paul, what sorts of environmental impacts of thawing permafrost have you observed? I reference back to my earlier comment about increasing frequency of geohazards, and that can lead to infrastructure failures. A road, for example, can wash out. So there certainly are, are environmental impacts linked to that. You know, there's increased sedimentation resulting in creeks, as an example, where you have more frequent geohazards such as landslides resulting from permafrost thaw. But that in turn then has significant impacts on you know, people's ability to, to move throughout the territory using our network when those incidences occur. And that's a great segue into another important topic. I'm wondering if we could expand a bit on the economic impacts of thawing permafrost. With the, the economic impacts, as we look at the cost to operate transportation networks, so roads, highways, and bridges, and that operational cost is the maintenance cost, removing snow, filling potholes, grading roads. 
and reconstruction costs as, as sections of that infrastructure age. One thing that we're certainly seeing is a shift in how money is spent. In areas where permafrost is thawing, maintenance costs can be up to eight times more than in areas where there is no permafrost. So we, we do see a significant uh, difference in those maintenance costs. What that means when you look at transportation budgets is, you know, under our current scenario where we have, you know, we've had fairly stable budgets moving into the future with increased impacts to climate change, continuing to maintain infrastructure to the current standard will not be possible with current budgets. When we look at deterioration of roads as a result of permafrost thaw, very simply, the roads aren't as smooth as they were before the permafrost thawed. What that means for trucking goods, such as food and other materials that are needed in the north, becomes more expensive because the trucks cannot move as efficiently on the network. So there's costs not just to the taxpayers through increased spending requirements from a maintenance perspective, an operation perspective for the network, but there's also costs that are borne in linked to the transportation of goods in the north as roads deteriorate. As permafrost thawing becomes more extensive under our highway network, those increased costs extend further. And as they extend further, then it becomes a question about where does that money come from to continue maintaining the highway network as we see more thawing permafrost impacts on, on our highway network. And then, you know, you on top of that, when you have to go back and start reconstructing these sections of road, the big question is, can you stabilize it? Or do you just have to accept that it's that the permafrost is thawing because the permafrost is very warm, very thaw sensitive, and there's no way to stabilize that. So certainly, you know, looking into the future for operating the network, increased costs and, and, and trying to look at ways to cover those increased costs or something that's going to have to be considered. We also are doing work uh, and it's been work with that we've been doing with Carleton University to develop a better understanding of how climate change and permafrost thawing result in a shift in maintenance activities. And, and what that means is there may be more days now where snow removal has to occur as compared with past seasons. So there's this really snowball effect that starts to occur when you look at all the implications and the potential for those implications to have impacts on cost to operating our network. When we have to spend more money to maintain a current level of service. There are decisions that may need to be made in the absence of increased funding. So you might go from that hard surface to a gravel surface because it's cheaper to maintain and operate that gravel surface. We'll certainly continue to maintain safe roads, but they may not be to the same standard. You may not be able to drive as fast in the future on some of these sections of road because they're not as smooth as they used to be. So we may decrease speed limits in addition to changing a surface. So there's implications to try to keep the network operating safely where the additional funding may not be available. And we've been touching on this a little bit so far in our discussion, but I wonder if we can shift gears to this in more earnest discussion and unpack a bit more about the social impacts of thawing permafrost. Socially, what that can mean for people is a lot of people in the territory use the land, I think, in, in traditional ways. So there's there's hunting, there's trapping, harvesting on the land. And 
that accessibility in the future uh, has the potential to be impacted uh, as a result of uh, damage caused to infrastructure by thawing permafrost. We've also seen other climate change impacts. And a, a really good example of that is in Dawson City. Since the 1960s, an ice bridge has been constructed across the Yukon River. It's about a 400-meter ice bridge over the river. And what we've seen in the past 25 to 30 years is the annual number of days that ice bridge can operate decrease by about 1.75 days per year. And that ice bridge was constructed successfully every year without issue from the 1960s through to the winter of 2013-14, where a portion of the river didn't freeze and additional measures needed to be taken to construct the ice bridge that year. And then in the winters of 2016-17, 2017-18, and 2018-19, we were unable to build an ice bridge due to open water in the river. So when you look at this change, and this, this ice bridge provides access to a community on the other side of the river, the social impacts are significant. The overall climate change impacts can be huge for a community when you look at losing access for an entire season. So what gaps exist in our understanding of permafrost thaw and the impacts of this change? One thing I'm questioning myself more and more is uh, the impact of uh, this uh, singular event such as a single heat wave during the summer or how the frequencies of these freak events may impact permafrost. Same thing with precipitation, you know. Sometimes we have a relatively dry, the usual dry Yukon summer, but less and less, you know. Sometimes we have events where it rains a lot for a few days, sometimes a few weeks, and it has an impact on permafrost. And we, we still have a, a hard time to grasp how it, this sequence of singular events that become more and more frequent may impact permafrost. Fabrice mentioned a number of the, the factors that impact permafrost. It's a dry season versus a wet season. It's a hot season versus a cool season. But then the piece that you layer on top of that is you add a piece of infrastructure that, that we built on top of the permafrost that again further complicates that scenario because the road on the permafrost affects permafrost behavior as well. It can act as a heat sink and determining how much heat that road will put into the ground compared to what naturally was put into the ground and how that impacts groundwater flow and how that impacts all these other factors is very complex. And being able to understand that to figure out how to adapt to climate change and how to stabilize highways becomes a much more complicated scenario than standard highway construction. Permafrost science is not a, a very unique body of research, right? Ground is connected to everything. It's very challenging to know how we will manage all this, this how we will balance the fact that we need to preserve permafrost to prevent damaging the infrastructure. But at, at, on another hand, we have to let it go, you know? If, if the climate is not on our side, we, we just cannot keep permafrost going artificially. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently released a report which found that due to historic and current greenhouse gas emissions, 
a certain amount of climate change is locked in, and that's to say is irreversible on the timescale of centuries to come, which highlights the need for adaptation measures which reduce vulnerability to the impacts of climate change. So what does adaptation to permafrost thaw look like, and how prepared are we to manage this risk? Going back to 2007-2008, we built a permafrost test site. That permafrost test site included 12 unique approaches to highway construction and permafrost terrain. And the purpose of that test site was to facilitate fundamental research around this test site, as well as get a, from an applied perspective, get a better understanding of how these sections could perform on thaw-sensitive permafrost. That work spawned numerous studies, and we learned a lot. And, and things that may seem very simple, like what happens to groundwater as it flows under the highway? And what we found is groundwater temperatures could decrease by as much as two degrees Celsius from one side of the highway to the other side of the highway down gradient, indicating a huge amount of heat going from the groundwater into the permafrost, inducing additional permafrost thaw. So lots of research was done there just to give us an idea of what type of approaches can we use to adapt our highway construction to provide stable highways in the face of climate change and thawing permafrost. And then some of the work stemming from that with Fabrice, we looked at a, a study on a portion of our highway network where we were trying to understand the vulnerability of that highway section to permafrost thaw. And then by looking at that vulnerability, combined with the knowledge that we were that we were gaining from our permafrost test site, we're put into a position where we can decide which sections we're likely able to stabilize and then move from a small test section to a larger test section. And then two years ago, we constructed a relatively large test section utilizing thermosiphons to keep some massive ground ice frozen under a segment of our highway. Now, when I talk about thermosiphons and, and, and sort of buried some buried ground ice, at this section, on this longest section of highway, a few hundred meters, we have pure ice, like that's like ice out of your ice cube tray in your house, up to eight meters thick. So when you think about thawing as that ice thaws, that would mean over time the highway would settle eight meters. So it was deemed to be a suitable site for an approach to stabilizing the highway. We, in we installed thermosiphons, which, are, which passively extract heat from the ground through the winter. We've found now after looking at the data that those thermosiphons are successfully keeping the ground cool at that location. And as a result, we're expecting that at that larger test site that we've constructed, that we are in a position to say that we are stabilizing the permafrost. So what do things look like? We can't put thermosiphons everywhere. We're talking a lot of money to do that. That's sort of site-specific extreme example of a very expensive approach to highway construction. But we are getting into a better position to have a better understanding of what our risk is throughout our network and then looking at the different approaches based on our knowledge from the test site and other work that we've done to make some decisions about how to best deal with the risk associated with climate change and permafrost thaw resulting from climate change. 
So what are some of the challenges faced in mitigating exposure to permafrost thaw? A lot of activities are done at the road level and at the road site to prevent any damage to the road. But more and more now, we have to look outside of the road to anticipate the damage that, may, that permafrost degradation may cause to the road. And when I think about that, we have a site where we have a landslide developing. They are going, progressing in direction of the road. And this one is challenging, right? Because it's not about building a better road, about building a road that does not impact permafrost. It's about a natural phenomenon that occurs in the field and that may come to impact your infrastructure. And Paul, was there anything from a infrastructure perspective that you would want to add? Throughout the Yukon, a lot of our infrastructure is trending towards end of useful life from a life cycle perspective. So what we're looking at is, you know, when we go to reconstruct, to rehabilitate that aging infrastructure, what approach do we use? And I, and I mentioned before, you know, the use of vulnerability studies. But there's also another issue which is really important, and that is when you look at designing transportation infrastructure, designing a road over permafrost, when you look at, you know, the industry and industries, the number of people in industry, the number of people in academia, and even the number of people working for governments that deal with this, we're dealing with a very small, you know, subset of practitioners, engineers, technicians, and, and academic experts. So as we look at, you know, getting resources to deal with design and construction and how to do that. A big challenge is finding the people that have the expertise and understanding to be able to successfully implement work because there's not many people in the North and there's not many people that specialize in permafrost engineering and permafrost science. So we deal with a very small community and as a result, very limited resources when we look at options to or hiring people to help us solve the issues that we have. What are the practical steps to minimize exposure to risks of permafrost thaw? Well, you know, we have a lot of examples of buildings that were designed to be built and to perform on permafrost that failed anyway. And there is few examples. There is schools, recreation center, and it's all across the north. Huh? So it's just proves that building on permafrost is very challenging and very demanding. And climate change will make it even harder. Can people get insured for permafrost or impacting their home? The answer is no. Nobody will insure you for permafrost damage. My, my, my understanding and everything that is has so much uncertainties and link, are linked to also the evolution of the climate, there is, I don't think that there is a lot of people that, that take the risk. There is very uh, well-known way to build house on permafrost. There is even some guides that you can find that has been developed in Northwest Territory, for example, for homeowner on, uh, for house uh, on permafrost. There is good practices that you can apply. And there is a lot of also very successful house built on permafrost, you know, simple techniques like uh, building on a pad of gravel. Okay, so your permafrost may uh, raise and aggrade a bit in the, in the gravel pad and ensure it a bit more stability to the building. Having your building above the ground 
on on pile or uh, on tripods, for example, are great to help uh, cool down permafrost because it, the the winter air can go between the house and the ground and and allow uh, permafrost to cool. The price is high. You don't build uh, this type of building cheap, and also the price is high because of the building itself, the the the, the design of the building, but also because we are living in the north, right? So think about a material uh, shortage that such, such as we had this year about uh, COVID, uh, and think about the cost of transportation, and it just add up on the issue, right? From uh, my perspective, with highways, you can't really minimize your exposure because the highway is already on permafrost, for example. But I think a lot of the work that, that we've been doing and the work that we'll continue to do with people like Fabrice, you know, academic experts, is understand the risk. That's climate change impact assessments linked to our projects so we can under, better understand and make sure we're quantifying the potential risks and then making decisions about our highway infrastructure that consider those risks. One thing also to minimize exposure to the risk of permafrost was one thing that we have done at Yukon University, which was to produce permafrost hazard maps for the communities. So you go in the communities, you study, uh, you study the geology, you are studying the sites, and you are mapping where are the permafrost area, uh, where are the areas where there is no permafrost, where are the areas where you know, we may have a mix, but it's not so bad. You may still uh, build on it uh, if you use some specific uh, techniques. And uh, you produce these maps so the community leaders can use them to develop their community and avoid the bad spot if they can, or choose the proper way to, to build on uh, some other areas where there is permafrost in such a way that the community is developed in a more friendly approach with permafrost. Thank you to Dr. Fabrice Kalmels and Paul Merkison for joining me to share your expertise on the environmental drivers and social and economic challenges associated with permafrost thaw, and importantly, the practical actions that can be taken to build resiliency in our socioeconomic systems to minimize exposure to this climate risk. Well, thanks to you. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this important conversation, George. And thank you to our listeners, and stay tuned to learn more about how climate change intersects our social and financial systems as I continue this series of episodes offering a deep dive into topics including flooding, wildfire, extreme heat, and more. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week.
The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.